Hello and welcome to Food Systems, a podcast from the Forum for the Future of Agriculture, where we discuss new ideas that can shape a sustainable food system from farm to fork, from policy to consumers, and everything in between. I'm your host, Robert Agraf, and you can find us on Twitter at Forum for Ag. These episodes will be available every other week on all major podcast platforms. Before we get started, we'd like to say a quick thank you to the FFA founding partners, the European Landowners Organization and Syngenta, as well as the FFA strategic partners, Cargill, The Nature Conservancy, Rabobank, Thought for Food and the World Wildlife Fund. Please enjoy this episode. Welcome to the first inaugural episode of Food Systems, the FFA podcast. Of course, we could pl- begin no other place than with uh, Dr. Janis Betoschnik, the chairman of FFA 2020 but, and the chairman of the RISE Foundation, but a man with a long and illustrious past in European politics and sustainability, including as Commissioner for Research, Commissioner for Environment, and the current co-chair of the UN Environmental Programme's International Research Programme. Janis, thank you very much for joining us today. It's a pleasure, Robert. Thank you. Um, I wanted to begin by going back to some remarks you made um, at the FFA live event in Berlin, which we uh, hosted on June 15. Um, And I wanted to focus on the issue of systemic change. Um, You said there are three crises, an economic one and a health one on the short term, and then a social ecologic crisis that is longer term, but I think we can both agree is already impacting uh, us now. I'd like to begin with the with the economic um, challenge. It, traditionally, it's very difficult for economic uh, change to come because there are two sides of that coin. There are vested economic interests that have a strong stake in maintaining a system as it is. And certainly when it comes to food, uh, there's a large social anxiety about change, things being different. Um, how, how do you overcome that economic anxiety and how do you overcome existing actors that may not be, be that may tell you that they are interested in change but not actually be interested in the process of change it is the fact that we are living in economic system which is based on consumerism and on quantities so more do you produce more do you sell higher are your profits and this is very much running the system this is of course fine as long as we do not, with the use of natural resources, come close or cross some of the limits, which is already happening. Uh, That's why it is essential that we start thinking in different way. Maybe this was best summarized by the Club of Rome, which was saying that we have moved from so-called empty world, uh, which was dominated by nature, to the full world, which, was, which is now dominated by humans. In the empty world, it was labor and infrastructure, which were the limiting factors of human well-being. While in the full world, it is the natural resources and environmental things. What does that mean? That means that if you want to consider any economic development in the future, you have to consider environmental things and natural resources in the first place because this will be your limiting factors. And if you do not consider that seriously, your economic development will be hampered in the future, which means that reconsidering the model which is based on consumerism 
and based on uh, on quantities which are running the whole system, it's essential if we want to go in a more sustainable direction. To me, that sounds like a very reasonable, very good sort of basis for, for, for projecting forwards. But, and you mentioned the Club of Rome. Uh, I can't remember the year, but it was over several decades ago. They published quite a famous report that was called The Limits to Growth, where they essentially said very similar things, that we cannot, that, that economic growth, exponential economic growth cannot go on forever on the basis of limited resources, or at least when there is no proper use made of those resources. Um, that report had quite an impact, but it didn't change fundamentally the, the economic system. Mm -hmm. It still seems, at least to me, that there is a preference um, also in the food system that says, okay, we will live for today and make our money for today, and tomorrow is somebody else's problem. So... These are not new thoughts. So how do we how do we break through that cycle? Yeah, they are not new thoughts, but we are living in new reality. We are not living exactly in the same reality as the uh, as it was the time when the Club of Rome issued the limits of growth. Uh, they were pretty visionary, to be honest. And I think that today, when we are already living that reality, we are not discussing uh, the future of the generations to follow, we are discussing our own future because the climate change is here and today and uh, the COVID crisis is here and today. The economic consequences are here and today. So we are basically discussing that for ourselves. And of course, uh, we need to think also about the world which we are uh, leaving to the future generations. I'm, I'm firmly convinced that through depletion of natural capital, we are actually indebting future generations. And while we will be in a need to respond to the COVID crisis and put a lot of economic uh, incentives, uh, financial incentives on the table, a lot of that it's, will be repaid because these are new debts will be repaid by the future generations again. So the minimum thing which we own to the future generations at this very moment is that after dealing with those crises, we don't leave them with the same problems like we like we're existing where we enter those crises. So we need to use those incentives and those uh, uh, those funds which are now, which will be released or are already released, that they do help us creating a more sustainable world, a world in which we will not be uh, terribly indebting financially and also environmentally future generations. Okay. So let us apply that thinking to the food system, which is something that, that, we, that certainly the FFA is, is focused on and that you and I have, have talked about um, in the past. What would be the best way to, to change those incentives when it, when it comes to the food system? We have seen there's now the EU Next Generation, which is the, the COVID recovery package. Um, there's the new Common Agricultural Policy, which is still to be finalized, the Farm to Fork Strategy, Biodiversity Strategy, um, the Forest Strategy. So there's quite a lot of um, strategies and policy thinking and paperwork coming out of Brussels at the moment. Um, across all those sort of different sets of papers, what, are, what is the best way to change the initiatives in the food system? Do we start on the farm with the consumers? I suppose you will say we start by changing everybody. But where is... What is a good starting point? Good starting point is that you change everybody, yes. But uh, I will try to explain you what actually really happened with the new documents which the Commission has adopted. 
The European Green Deal is quite a revolutionary document. For me, the most important sentence in the Green Deal, it's actually the sentence, this is a new growth strategy. What does that mean? That means that the top policymakers in the, in the critical European institution, which European Commission is, have finally understood that economic development and preservation of environment and health are not in contradiction, which was to a large extent understood before. You know, I, was, I, I have proposed in 2014 the circular economy package, which was somehow denied immediately when the new commission uh, came into the place, the Juncker's commission. It was removed from the agenda. Uh, I would dare to say that it was removed to a large extent because it was proposed by Commissioner for Environment, because it was seen as something which is not working hand-in-hand hand with the economic interests of the European Union, which fortunately, very quickly, they have started to understood in a different way. And later on, very soon, they have introduced this package back on the agenda. And now with the European Green Deal, we have got the recognition that the things which I mentioned before of the, which are the limits, the major limits of the human well-being and economic growth that they are based on actually environmental sinks and natural resources, that this is the fact which is uh, uh, now very much present in the European Green Deal logic and approach. So it, it is, as you said, it is still on the paper, but recognizing that fact, it's already a very, very important step because we all have to know that uh, European Commission is somebody who is listening to many interests and it's analyzing many of the things. And of course, it's not immune to power gain, which is happening in the field of politics and also business. And if they are coming with such a courageous document, then we have to understand that something has happened and that the world has moved, at least in the logic, in the right direction. So we are not yet there, that's clear. And I think that uh, uh, when you look to the implementation documents, because I have always understood European Green Deal, not just the communication from December, but actually all the documents which are uh, following it, when it, when it is coming to the implementation documents, we can easily see that uh, there is still some room of improvement of how to approach, and in particularly because uh, uh, there is still a room that they would go more to the core drivers which are leading to those, uh, to those unsustainable developments instead of uh, dealing with some of uh, important uh, parts of that. If I explain you, for example, on the mobility issue, if you look to the mobility question, because at the end people need mobility, we don't need car. If you look through the optic, which is normally the optic which was used practically in all commission documents, that they try to, uh, to um, introduce and support very much the electrification of the car fleet, and that they would do everything that the batteries would be uh, more environmentally friendly, would use less resources and so on, 
you don't actually address the question of mobility because the real problem of mobility today is underutilization of the existing fleets. It's uh, that, we, that we are not introducing enough, uh, I don't know, public transport, not enough uh, alternative opportunities to the car, uh, not enough infrastructure which would support that logic. So it's not enough if you approach through the car and battery logic. You have to approach through the mobility logic, where, of course, car and battery play an important role. But this is not a kind of a system-based approach which we started to talk at the beginning of our interview. So that's essential. And also when it comes to agriculture, I think it's very much essential that you go in that way and in that direction. So for me, uh, these are the things which I talked about already during the, the uh, FFA 2020. For me, it is important how we approach to the question of the food prices, because I have always believed that the farmer deserves. I, I wanted to I wanted to get into the into yeah. the question of price, and I thank yeah. you for already <laughs> introducing the the word. Um, sure. During the the session in, in Berlin, you said, um, among other things, you said maybe it it could come down if if we want to price food honestly, as you say, and that we take in all the the externalities, the negative consequences, of what we do. Um, that it could come to higher food prices. Now, personally speaking, I have a reasonable uh, income. I don't think I would mind paying much more for f for some of my food. But um, it, what I would find interesting is to... Then, is then answer me immediately one question. Why we should subsidize you? I personally speaking, I don't think I sh I shouldn't have not have much subsidy. But my question was also not, I'm not egotistical <laughs> enough to make this interview about myself. <laughs> is um, to ask the question, and certainly it's also a political challenge, which is to say, find me a, a serious politician with credibility who will turn to his or her people and say, your bread will become more expensive. I mean that traditionally speaking, higher food prices have not worked out well for for seating for sitting political systems. Yeah, true. That's why we have always approached to that question from a point of view that this is uh, part of our social policy. And uh, indeed, what in the first place we have to guarantee is that everybody has access to bread and other food, because this is part which we need for our life. And we know that. So it's something which, is, uh, which comes among the commodities which are necessary for human life. And uh, it's obligation that everybody has access to that, simple as that. But that doesn't mean that you can sacrifice some of the environmental concerns and policies which at the end of the day will hamper the very same production, which will lead to much higher prices at the end, potentially, and that this is the right way to deal with the question. So I would rather approach to that in a way that, like in any sector, also in agricultural sector, full costs are taken into account. But if you find that there are the problems that somebody does not have enough income to access that, there are at least two ways to deal with it. The first, most important, is that you distribute incomes a bit more fairly than we are currently distributing them. So in Europe, we don't have problem with poverty if we would just focus 
on the problem of the distribution of wealth a bit more than on the on, exclusively on the problem of the economic growth. This is simply not, not, not the correct way to go. I can quote you a sentence from the annual sustainable growth strategy 2020 from the European Commission. I think it was at the beginning of this year, where basically they are saying that after the economic crisis 2008, the income disparities have in Europe um, in the countries increased and that access to public services have also been more difficult uh, and uh, was more difficult for low-income uh, communities. So tell me what is the purpose of economic growth if income disparities are increasing and why we should rather not look how the income should be more fairly distributed. And second, even if we have solved that problem, which is essential, then always you have the possibility that you deal, if you still, if the uh, poverty still exists, that you use social policies instead of sacrificing environmental policies to dealing with the question uh, uh, in, in, which you mentioned at the beginning. So, I, so don't, uh, don't just accuse me that I, don't want, that I want to take the food from the... Well, from some, no, no, I don't know. No, no. I'm, I'm just provoking. Uh, I just want to say that, it, that in the first place, the cost should be taken into account if we don't want to destroy our nature, uh, our ecosystems, in the second place, and at the same time, we have to take care that the farmers have decent incomes. In the third place, we absolutely have to take care that everybody has access to food and has incomes which do not put in question either you can afford the food or not. That's, I think that's a, that's a very good point, which, bring, which brings us quite neatly, I think, to the common agricultural policy, which... T- to be sure, is the largest pot of money Europe has available. Um, it's also a powerful policy instrument because it directly relates quite substantially uh, to to farm incomes. What is the role of the CAP in bringing around bringing about such systemic change? Because there are many voices uh, that say that the, the the reform as it currently stands it does not match sort of the high level of ambition uh, as displayed by the Green New, New Deal. Yeah. Um, how, how how would you answer that? Uh, if we continue with the answer where we stopped before, if the food prices are actually not providing you with an income that you can have a decent life, and many farmers today are struggling, then you need income support. And a lot of that income support is coming through the common agriculture policy. But if you use common agriculture policy for the income support, you cannot use it for something which is today desperately needed. That's for how to make the agriculture more sustainable and how to use all publicly available money for supporting that kind of a transition. So if you spend it for one purpose, you can't spend it for another purpose. And my point was always that we are dealing with, a, uh, with an immediate challenge of how to make agricultural transition uh, to a more uh, sustainable, environmentally friendly, climate friendly uh, world. Uh, and if that would want to be done, we need to, to uh, use practically all public funds which are disposable 
for that purpose. And if we use them for the income support, of course, we don't use them exactly for that purpose. So it's a kind of a vicious circle, if you understand. So if you, and, uh, and in a way, you create also the interests against the change of the common agricultural policy approach. And uh, that's why the things simply don't move from this vicious circle uh, out. But uh, yeah, I th uh, of course, access to food and uh, the, the importance of that was even more seen through the COVID crisis, which we are still living in. And it's essential, of course, that this is guaranteed. But again, we should not put that into in the contradiction with the development of more sustainable agriculture, because I'm quite convinced that the two things could easily go hand in hand. So if I gave you, let's say for, let's, let's pause for a moment that we made you um, emperor of Europe and you could, your designs would go, go through um, and not, you know, you would have a great degree of authority over this program. Uh, the CAP budget is give or take 60 billion. How, how would you spend it if, if, if we could give you free reign to do it? I would first uh, create around me a group of wise people who would base their decisions on, uh, on science uh, because I think what we have learned uh, in this crisis and also in the climate-related and biodiversity-related crises, which we are basically also in, is that uh, listening to the voice of science, it's extremely important. And uh, that it's also making easier policymaking. So I don't think that if I would be an emperor, that I would already know everything. On the contrary, I think that you have to be wise enough to, to arm yourself with the people with the knowledge and listen and then come with uh, proposals, conclusions, which would... Uh, drive basically world in a more sustainable way. That doesn't exclude some political responsibility, of course, because at the end, decisions should be taken. But I think one of the lessons learned from, from the times in which, strange times in which we are living, it's also that, that relying more and, and not picking from the science those things which fit more in your interest, it's the way to go. I, I agree, but um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to reframe the question then. You, I, you would surround yourself with, with sort of better scientific advice. I think there's nothing that that's something we, we can certainly all, all agree with. But as former commissioner for environment, for research, as co-chair of the uh, UNEP Environmental Resource Panel, I think most people would consider you one of those wise men. So sure. what, what, would be, what would be a concrete solution uh, apart from a better policy-making structure. What would be my part which I would contribute to the debate, you want to ask me? Yes, and, and, and how would you, given some of the systemic crises and the systemic problems we've talked about, what would you, what would you do? Where would you spend money? What, what, would be the, what would be the Janus Potosnik policy initiative? No, I would uh, fundamentally uh, change some of the things which I think are in economic system, which economic and social system, which we have developed, uh, which are sending us in the wrong direction. If you want, I would start with the new metrics. So, because we have to fix a broken compass. Um, GDP, it's like uh, uh, 
If I want to explain what is GDP, it's you will not reach uh, your goal by walking faster if you are walking in the wrong direction. That's somehow the best expression what GDP is telling us. So changing the metrics there, introducing natural capital metrics, introducing better uh, cost accounting in the business sector, then moving social policy more into the center of our policy making, following dematerialization through decoupling of economic growth from resource use and environmental impacts. And rather than on resource efficiency, start talking on resource sufficiency, basing our logic on human needs, because humans do not need cars. We need mobility. We don't need light bulbs. We need the light. We don't need pesticides. We need pest-protected fields. So uh, then certainly uh, reorientating some of the incentives which we are sending to market actors, which to a large extent goes to the debate which we have before, how to address the price system, what are the signals which we are sending. So I'm currently more or less claiming that uh, that production capital in a way it's overvalued and overrewarded, that human capital it's undervalued and underrewarded, and that natural capital it's not valued at all. And if we are sending that signals to economic actors, to producers and consumers, we shouldn't expect the world which will be in balance. Then, of course, doing everything that we would uh, have organized sustainable financing for the future, having an intergenerational agreement through the new forms of leadership and finally upgrading international governance. So more collaboration, more sharing of sovereignty, because in the world, which is for the first time in the human history, really interconnected and independent on a global level, we have to accept the fact that some of the problems can only be solved together. I wanted to use the sort of the last minutes of this interview to talk about what I think in, in, in nobody's, at least certainly not for our listeners, would be one of the most pressing issues and certainly also the most pressing intergenerational and interconnected one. That's the issue of climate change. Yeah. Um, as, as we speak, it is 30 plus degrees in Siberia. Um, it is going to be once again a very warm summer. I think we, we can both agree on that. Um, and yet... Most of the things we we read about the Paris Accords is that they will they are either insufficient or countries because it is essentially it is a ratchet mechanism but voluntary um, that a lot of countries are not living up to it. Indeed, some of the major players have even stepped out of it and said this is not what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we is is Paris a joke? Should we say that was a failed experiment and try something new? No, Paris. It's not a joke because it has finally brought the core policy decision makers around the same table and uh, they were even able to agree about something that they were not able to agree some about something which is enough uh, ambitious, it's clear. But again, one of the experiences which we have from the COVID crisis is that now when we, we, we do accept that climate change is the problem, but we don't really see it on a level of urgency because when we have seen now the COVID, we, yes, we have put a lot of money on the table immediately now, and this was possible, while before it was not possible, now it is essential that that money is actually used 
also for the purposes also for future fight against the climate change. And I think it's, it's, it's now or never. So it's a moment which is ideal. So with the money which, and with the readiness of countries also to deploy it, we got actually a potential uh, urgency also for the addressing the climate issue on the table, if we will just use it smartly and in the right way. So it is a very, uh, very important moment. Uh, and one lesson which we should also learn from the COVID, it's, it's uh, simply that, that many are saying that the world has changed, but I do believe that the world has not changed. The world is the same as it was. It is not changing so fast, but we are understanding it better. That's true. And hopefully we will also act accordingly. So one of the things which we can summarize is that the likelihood of the climate-related weather extreme events and also health-related outbreaks will in the future increase, which means that we have to prepare better, that we have to build our economies and societies on a more resilient base, and that we simply have to reconsider the way how we are managing the risks as individuals, as, uh, uh, as public policymakers, as companies globally, locally, on all the levels. Because the way we are currently acting, and we have seen, if we do not act in that case where a challenge is global in a coordinated way, then the consequence is more lost jobs and even worse, more lost lives. Normally, uh, we ask everybody who participates in the podcast, even this inaugural one, for a um, a simple solution. Um, but I think you have given us many solutions already, and certainly, I think that's a very strong lot uh, to leave it on. Janis uh, Patoshnik, chairman of the FFA, thank you very much for um, agreeing to be on this program, and um, we will see you again at future FFA events. Thank you very much. Thank you, Robert. It was a pleasure talking to you. You've been listening to an episode of Food Systems, a podcast brought to you by the Forum for the Future of Agriculture. Look for us in two weeks when we release our new episode. And in the meantime, please don't forget to subscribe on your podcast app as well as on Twitter, at ForumFag, for updates on this podcast, news, as well as FFA events. Please check out our website, www.forumforagriculture.com, for more great content. Thank you for listening and enjoy your day. Music